Welcome to Depollution, the new podcast from Salvage Wire. In this podcast, we will be interviewing interesting and inspiring leaders to discuss issues that are facing the vehicle salvage and vehicle recycling industries, along with other leaders who can challenge and inspire the whole industry. In this podcast, we welcome Chaz Ambrose of the Vehicle Recyclers Association. Let's get straight into my conversation with Chaz. A little bit of an introductory on this one. Um, so can we start, Chaz, with just an introductory, a little bit about your career, who you've worked for, you know, and, and the roles that you've done, but also your current, um, uh, current business, location, size, history, and so on. Yeah. Okay. Morning, Andy. Um, well, I don't have um, an automotive or engineering background um, for a start. That's the basic thing. I was trained and worked as a scientist, as a biologist and a genetic engineer in the uh, in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Um, and I got into environmental issues such as recycling while at university in the early 1990s. Um, uh, after a career break, um, from university, uh, well, I was looking for something new to do. I met a gentleman called Derek Wilkins of uh, Rover Group at a trade show in about in about 1996-97. Um, and at the time, Rover were heading up an organisation called Accord and Care, uh, which was set up in response to the uh, European Union identifying end-of-life vehicles as one of a number of priority waste streams. Um, so that was before the ELV directive emerged. Uh, there was probably a draft by then kicking about. Uh, but anyway, I, I volunteered to go and work for Derek at Rover in Warwick, and I did this for a couple of years. And uh, It was really interesting and a lot of fun. Um, and apart from Derek, I worked most closely with a gentleman called Rob Taylor, who uh, is quite well known in, in this industry, who later moved on to Sims Metal Management to look after their depollution side. Um, and I'd, I'd had a long interest in uh, repairing cars, although I had uh, no expertise. Um, and, and naturally, as, as someone young with no money, I spent a lot of time at car breakers uh, throughout the 1980s and 1990s. And the interesting thing is that um, a lot of those I've returned to work with professionally since then. Um, but anyway, um, when I was working for the care group, we were focused on um, non-metallic recycling, so things like plastics and foams, fluids, shredded residue. And CARE had about 15 to 20 associated vehicle recyclers where we carried on, where we carried out a lot of the basic research. Um, and I, I really loved the combination of uh, getting my hands dirty, pulling cars to bits, doing the weighing and the measuring, and then writing up technical reports and stuff like that. Um, and it was while I was doing that that I got to know quite a lot of the movers and shakers uh, in the vehicle recycling industry, some, many of which I'm still working with. Um, I ended up at VRA more by um, accident than design um, as a consequence of working for uh, CARE. I uh, went to work for one of the, one of the big, biggest vehicle recyclers, um, spent 12, uh, 12 years there. Um, and during that time, um, I spent uh, quite a bit of time on the VRA, the, the, what was the Motor Vehicle Dismantlers Association Management Committee. Um, and when I, when I left the recycling company in 2012, I did a little bit of consultancy work, including for the MVDA. Um, and, that, and that carried on uh, for a couple of years until Duncan Weems, who was the uh, association chairman at the time, until he retired in late 2013. And, and basically, I, I took over his role 
and and that's where we are today, um, Andy. Mm. So if that if that answers no, roughly that one, that's great. That's great. Now you mentioned um, that the Vehicle Recyclers Association used to be called the Motor Vehicle Dismantlers Association, but that yeah, you know, you re, uh, the rebrand was was done uh, last year. Can you explain yeah. to the listeners the reasons behind the rebrand and what you've achieved since uh, that rebrand occurred? Yeah. Um, well, vehicle. We, we changed from the Vehicle Motor Vehicle Dismantlers Association to the Vehicle Recyclers Association because um, the, the general feeling was that vehicle recycling is uh, is a better description of, of what our what our industry does these days. Um, so uh, our members don't just dismantle vehicles. Uh, mm-hmm. It's probably true to say that in the past that was more of the emphasis. Um, but in the last 20 years, uh, 30 years, our members do a lot of repairable salvage. And um, they obviously, they, metal recycling, material recycling is becoming increasingly important. Uh, and a lot of our members do just metal recycling. Mm-hmm. So we, we felt it better reflected um, what our members did these days. Um, and of course, we wanted to make uh, full full use, take full advantage of of, recy- of the term recycling, which is um, which is obviously very trendy. Yeah. Um, so that that was it, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also um, a concern that the MVDA had become uh, was or was seen as as old fashioned, and there probably was an element to to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that all of those a combination of those issues really, Andy. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So so as as the leader of the Vehicle Recyclers Association, for those that are a little unsure, can you educate us about the difference between vehicle recycling and vehicle salvage? Well, uh, yeah, I, I think from my point of view, uh, vehicle recycling is is all encompassing. So it, it's to do with all of the different elements or aspects of, of vehicle recycling. So it would include damaged vehicle sales, but also things like depollution, dismantling, mm-hmm. part sales, core sales, and material recycling. Mm-hmm. Whereas I, I think the general um, recognition of salvage will be it's just the sale of damaged vehicles. So what we do is is, is much more detailed uh, work then we don't just not just buying and selling vehicles mm-hmm. it's the full process yeah uh, but you know different people have have different views and uh, you know the, the term salvage is very loosely um, used which which can lead to a lot of confusion mm-hmm. but that, that's that's my view of yeah. it anyway yeah. and right now we're recording this interview right now at the height of the coronavirus uh, pandemic mm-hmm. but putting that to one side what do you believe are the challenges that the vehicle recycling industry is facing and and, you know, and how different do you think that that industry will be in the next 5, 10, 15 years or so? Mm, well, that's a $64 million question, isn't it? Um, I wish I had the answer. Um, there's, I mean, there'll be a lot of challenges. There's a lot of challenges now, Andy. Um, and there has been, there always have been. Things, yeah. things have moved on an awful lot in the last 30 years um and it's always the case that you know what you think or predict will be the challenges don't turn out to materialize or or very much delayed but i i think you know there are there are real pressures for change um from 
outside of the sector, outside of the industry, and, and within it. Mm. Um, you know, probably the, the, the highest profile ones at the moment are, are vehicle automation and electrification. You know, that, that's not something that's, that's driven within ours. That's, that's driven from a you know, much greater society um, aspect, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there's a lot of uh, pressure to accelerate these changes. Or obviously, well, I, I mean, in reality, global warming is probably the biggest threat that's facing us all now. It's not obviously uppermost in everybody's mind, but the reality of this, that is the reality of the situation. So, um, you know, that's, that's what we're going to have to deal with. Um, if you look at uh, some of the pressures within, you know, the implications of that within our own sector, you've got to look at, for example, what, what's, what effects that going to have on the salvage market? You know, it's, in many respects, it's currently it's a free-for-all with the mm. sale of, of damaged vehicles. Will that, will, will increasing technology and, and complication associated with the automation and electrification will that change the salvage model for insurers you know will we continue to export huge quantities of salvage out of the uk um is the parts reuse a sustainable proposition moving forward you know mm-hmm. dealing with such such complicated issues and, and how will recyclers deal with the new technology in terms of testing and guaranteeing the parts and, and even handling the vehicles in the parts. What about electric vehicle battery removal and storage? Yeah. I still don't think most people have woken up to that that significant issue. Mm. Uh, okay, we're not, we're, not, we're not seeing these in enormous quantities right now, Andy, but we're already seeing hybrid end-of-life vehicles and that yeah. volume is going to quickly grow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, probably should finish off, Andy, by saying, you know, it's not just challenges. There are enormous, fantastic opportunities. Oh, um, but the, the real question for me, and perhaps the greatest challenge of all, both with challenge and opportunity, is whether recyclers will be able to rise to that challenge, you know, and whether they're going to receive uh, the support they need from the customers, the clients and, and, and the government. Do you see the industry becoming much more professional uh, with this, with these, these challenges? Do you see it becoming much more um, technical? There's a lot more technicians. There's a lot more training and development required for the people working in this industry. Do you see that happening? Well, kind of yes, yes and no. Uh, I mean, that's been, you know, we it, it was said that when black boxes were introduced, you know, ECUs, it would it would be the death knell of of the industry. Um, there wouldn't be anything that vehicle recyclers could do, vehicle dismantlers could do in terms of spare parts. Mm. But that, that really, in many ways, that hasn't materialised. The you know the, the industry has adapted, yeah. uh, and and that, and they've worked with it. Um, when the ELV directive was was first introduced, everybody said, you know, well, it's, you're gonna, we're going to have to concrete everything. It's gonna, the cost is going to be astronomical. We're never going to be able to survive. And in reality, very little has changed in that mm-hmm. respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a common it's a common mistake to think that you to talk about the whole industry because there are lots of different players and types of players in this industry. The vast majority of operators in terms of permitted sites are very small businesses, mm. family mm. businesses. I would guess with employ employing less than ten people, probably yeah. less than five people. Yeah. So um, I, I'm I'm really you know I'd like to say yes. It's going to drive professionalism. I'm sure it will drive professionalism in a certain sector. It does 
you know, depend on on how you define professionalism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think in in term, I think it's very difficult, Andy. I think the the real key thing is going to. I think that what will drive it is not so much. It's not so much you know, what's pushing it to change, like electrification. It's going to be whether there's an economic model yeah. to encourage investment, and that that is real, really the core thing. So, you know, we we you know we'll probably talk about green parts a bit later, but you know, I think if if for example insurers uh, do take on green parts or encourage their body shops to use green parts and they can build a value and they can build a real value chain in that um, appreciate the value in 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 the breakers um, I think that will flow all the way through mm-hmm. uh, insurers will demand higher standards recyclers that they work with will rise to that challenge I'm sure and there'll be increasing professionalism my real my real real concern is that we'll have a two-tier system where you have you have uh, a lot of operators underneath that working to very low standards, mm-hmm. probably probably an enormous illegal sector um, competing for uh, vehicles with the professional operators. Yeah. And I think that that my fear is that will really limit um, the scope for mm-hmm. any grid parts thing, mm-hmm. and hence professional you know professional development of the industry. Yeah. So, 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 what does the industry have to do to uh, achieve much greater acceptance of recycled parts in vehicle repair? What's what what steps do the industry have to take to do that? Well, I mean, Andy, you, you're aware of um, you'll be aware of a project, um, a significant project, underway on this, mm. um, and and recyclers have, have got a lot to do. But it's not just the recyclers. Government's got a lot to do, and insurers also have a vital role to play, mm-hmm. and other organisations such as software providers and online marketplaces. So it's going to take uh, activity, uh, action from all of those um, to, to make to make the change. Uh, and it's really interesting observation that you know, eBay, for example, has been a strong supporter of the Green Parts project that we're doing. Mm. You know, when when platforms such as theirs have been used so extensively by illegal dismantlers, but but I think it's a really a really positive and welcome move from eBay and something that we should you know we should all support. Yeah. Um, because we certainly shouldn't forget or underestimate the um, the benefits that eBay has has brought to vehicle recycling. I, I think many people don't understand how they've rejuvenated the sale of, of used parts. Mm. But I think it, to, you know to answer your question specifically, you know there's there's a couple of things, well, more than a couple of things that recyclers need to improve. Um, that that's you know first of all it's consistency of the the product, uh, the quality the quality of the product. Um, there's got to be scalability in in um, uh, in delivering it. Uh, I think you know two or three dismantlers recyclers working to very high standards is is not going to deliver long-term sustainability for used parts market uh, you need you need to have volume mm-hmm. and i think the the other thing is you need to have which is which has been a problem is you need to get the parts to the customer delivery mm-hmm. that's a real issue it's really with body panels the type of thing that um insurers and body shops are going to be interested in that they're very sensitive to uh, damage yeah yeah so, so so what's the solution for that delivery um uh, issue that that delivery problem how 
what's the best best thing that could be done? Well, I, I think you know a lot of those are, are, are interrelated, and <clears throat> you know one depending upon another. Hmm. But what we are seeing is we are seeing uh, individual recyclers offering uh, their own delivery service, delivery yeah. vans. Um, I mean, you'll, you'll be aware of what um, Hills is currently mm. doing, mm. Uh, Green Parts specialist with um, uh, with Aegeus. Mm. Um, I mean, that I've seen their vans out and about. Uh, other big recyclers are doing similar things. I, I think to, to move it forward, you know, I think they're going to need to be, there's going to need to be some joined up thinking. I can't see the point in, you know, 20 big recyclers offering 20, uh, you know, running 20 different fleets. Mm. And um, uh, of course, um, <laughs> Green Park specialists are, have got a collection network with their their network of, um, mm. uh, of recyclers. So, I mean, I've, I've seen them picking up and delivering to um, ASM in Tame mm. and Auto Spares in 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 Rawns and mm. Trent's in Pool. So, you know, it, it's very much underway. Yeah. Uh, but I think that that's that's things like bumpers you can you can stick in in the post. They're expensive to I wouldn't say the post with the courier. Mm. Um, they're expensive to ship because they're big and bulky. Um, but body body panels yeah. are very expensive yeah. to ship by courier yeah. and very prone to damage. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think there needs to be there's going to have to be something like that. Yeah. And unless one of the big couriers, you know, sees sufficient scope to invest specifically in that. But I think, you know, I think recyclers can do that themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, great. Now, a couple of years ago, the um, the insurance industry in the UK updated the salvage code of practice. And uh, has that salvage code of practice made any difference to you, uh, your your members? And you know, where where has that difference been shown? Uh, well, no, I don't think so, really, Andy. Mm-hmm. I don't think in practice, I don't think it's made very much difference at all. Yeah. Um, at, at first glance, it's a far better document. Uh, it makes a lot more sense in in many respects than the previous one. But the bottom line is, it's voluntary and it's unenforceable, and there's uh, lots of loopholes. So I don't think it's driven a great deal of substantial change in behaviour for many insurers. Um, in my personal view, it hasn't stopped insurers selling what I would class as unrepairable salvage. Mm-hmm. Um, and it certainly hasn't changed much with regard to Cat B salvage, other than uh, the DVLA now now clearly refusing to issue reissue registration documents for Cat B vehicles. So, um, no, I don't I don't think it has, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what can the insurers do, uh, or, or could they have done? You know, to make this make this different, to make this better. Well, I think the, the I think the, the bottom line is there's there's lots of there's many different insurers with many different views, the same as there are in our sector and in any mm. other. Um, some insurers, I think, take uh, uh, have got a very strong ethical approach to salvage, um, but I think others are focused just on money, um, mm. on on obtaining the maximum return. And I think they will use every means possible, short of breaking the law, um, to, to to achieve that. And I think that's why um, that's why some people wanted a legislative back, uh, background to the code mm. of practice. Mm. Um, I mean, without going into, I mean, it's probably not the place to go into huge amounts of detail. But I, I think, 
you know, one of the, I think the the area of greatest concern is just the amount of salvage going out of the country, which is un, you know, unreported. I think yeah. the fact that so much uh, salvage is so badly structurally damaged that there's not really, you know, having said that, there's not really any data, any clarity about what's happening, and we're not going to get that because mm-hmm. insurers want to protect their, you know, protect their commercial yeah. interests. But I, I think, you know, we've all, we've said for years that it's only a matter of time before it comes back and bites someone on the arse. Mm. Uh, I mean, there have been cases where cat bees, you know, high value cat bees have come back into this country and have been insurers. Yeah. Um, and that has prompted some change. But, you know, I think they just look at it. The risk of getting caught is low. Yeah. Um, you know, that's not the case across the board, but, you know, there are certain elements of that. So I think many people know those are. Yeah. So is is there one one thing you'd you'd like to see changed around the code of practice that, that will improve it? Or, or is it is it a raft of things? I, I think it's a raft of things, but I think fundamentally, you know, with the with the way things are changing, Andy, I think we're looking at a radical change in the salvage mm. model. Mm. You know, I, I know, I know. You know, lots of my members may not agree or agree with that. I mean, lots of people have made lots of money on salvage in yeah. the past, but you know, things change, Andy, and things are, will always change, and they're constantly changing. And you know, um, business as a business has got to be nimble and survive, and 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 constantly be ready for change. Yeah, and. Um, I think you know we go back a few years when the when the code of practice was uh, first being revised, and there was all the fuss about you know the repair of Cat B vehicles. Uh, I'm sure that's happening overseas anyway. I don't mm. think that's changed. Um, I mean we know we know it's still happening because we get to hear of cases. But I, I think you know I, I'm more and more of the mind that if if a piece of salvage is is lightly damaged. Then, then it can be sold. If it's if it's heavily structurally damaged, um, so a lot of probably cat S's and all cat B's, I think the insurers should be saying, if it can't be repaired in my network, um, or or if it's not easily repairable, then it should be dismantled and destroyed. Mm-hmm. So you know, you know, I think we we would be looking at half of all what are classified as repairable salvage now going to dismantle. Right. Um, and I think that's going to be driven. That that will be driven by uh, the problems associated with repairing, structurally repairing, you know, vehicles where where they have complex or or, or um, modern material technologies, aluminium, carbon fibre, mm-hmm. high tensile steels, yeah. or, or automation, you yeah. know, electronic components. How how on earth, you know, how can you sell? these vehicles to somebody who's got no expertise in in repairing these and and there's n- there's no transparency in how it's been repaired or who it's been repaired by so you know i, I think there needs to be a fundamental change at some stage in the way salvage is sold yeah or, or it could be that you know insurers take the view well we'll just offshore it mm-hmm. it will be this will be somebody else's problem we'll export yeah. it to you know to the eastern um you know eastern europe other parts of the world and it can be somebody else's problem mm-hmm. i think the, the problem you know the problem for us with with that is that it's constantly taking resource and stock away from the uk yeah. um which un- would undermine you know the sustainability of any green parts initiative mm-hmm. because there just won't be enough stock yeah. to support yeah. it yeah. So, yeah we will come back to our conversation with Chaz in a moment 
Salvage Insight is a new program from SalvageWire. We are creating a range of intensive management bootcamp options for business owners and managers who want to measure current value creation, create compelling customer experiences, market, promote and sell more effectively, improve profitability, manage smarter at every level of the business, determine the most effective lightweight fleet of foot management structure and create a strategic vision, refresh the mission statement and develop a new business plan. Salvage Insight will launch with a one-day boot camp on Wednesday the 17th of June. For more details and information, please contact SalvageWire through our website www.salvagewire.com. Back to our conversation with Chaz. Now, changing tax lightly, the industry that we work in is, is very family orientated with lots of generations working under parents, even grandparents. Can you give any advice to any young or aspiring leaders looking to advance their career in this industry and eventually attain full ownership and leadership of their family business? Well, I'm, I'm not a great one for giving advice, really. Um, you know, I, I think... Listen, listen to lots of people. You know, mm -hmm. this. I think you know. If I was, I suppose. Um, okay, um, be market aware. Mm -hmm. I'd say, look at look at the general direction of travel. I think networking is absolutely critical. Network with a diverse range of people inside and outside the sector. Listen, learn, and think. Yeah. You know, form friendships and alliances. Uh, keep abreast of technology in mm -hmm. vehicles IT and of course in wider society yeah. uh, focus on quality and, and of course be part of your trade association mm -hmm. which is the most important thing naturally <laughs> <laughs> absolutely we'll, we'll get to that one later <laughs> yeah is there is there one thing that you think the UK government could do differently that would have the biggest benefit to the to the vehicle recycling industry yeah, I think they should have been more effective regulators. I think they're very poor regulators, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. um, in particular, I mean that, that they could do that on lots of levels, but in particular, they could they could be more proactive and forceful in dealing with illegal recyclers. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I've I found them to be short on imagination, to be quite honest. They, mm -hmm. you know, for years we've been saying to them, you need to work smart, not harder. So, for example, you know, when we flagged uh, the problem with online sales channels, you know, the press, they should have realized straight away they need to put the pressure on these online sales channels mm. to, to police themselves. Mm. You know, there's, there's absolutely no, there's no possibility of the environment agency, you know, following up 5,000 illegal request uh, reports a year yeah. because of the, just the amount of, uh, of work that's involved is astronomical but they should have gone back to you know the, the online sales channels mm. and there are more than one there's lots of them yeah. and said look we think you know these people are all illegals do something about it i mean the really the really sad thing is that you know we're not it's not you know vehicle recyclers are are not anywhere near the most important people you know selling on these platforms i mean i i remember dealing with the with the police on stolen vehicle parts um, 15 years ago mm. plus um, mm. and they still haven't got to grips with it 
you know so i think if if you can't if the police can't get these platforms to change then you know government itself has got to take a much harder line with them yeah. and and that's still you know it's still not really happening mm. um you know we have seen some changes we we're, we're working with one platform in particular at the moment as you know mm. and and they 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 are taking it seriously but you know to a degree you, yeah. you know uh, not anywhere near near enough. I, I know that, but to do, you know, it's going to. I think all of these platforms are, men, are generating such a large amount of income from it that obviously it's not in their interest to define mm. <laughs> their own business. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, I, I don't think people understand how much money is involved in in illegal vehicle dismantling. Mm. Uh, it's it's phenomenal, and you know, I I think there's probably three times more illegal sellers online than there are legal. Right. You know, and it could be more than that. Yeah. But, the, but the quantities of money are phenomenal. I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. So, so what benefit do you, does the the Vehicle Recyclers Association bring to the industry, and why should vehicle recyclers be members of the VRA? Yeah, um, well, being being completely honest with you, Andy, I think that's that's actually a more difficult question to answer than, than first might appear. Um, <laughs> You know, you'd expect me to say, well, because we're a vital and indispensable service to our members. But, you know, in some respects, I think that's a question better addressed to our members. Mm. You know, I think they're the people who will tell you, you know, what, what they think the value of it is. Um, but I think in, in the past, I think, you know, the MVDA, I think, lost its way and lost members over the years, over a long time. Um, and I do, I do occasionally look back at the old MVDA output. And, you know, it, it looks good. Mm. So, you know, it's not clear to me why why there was a problem, if there was a problem. But perhaps it's just the way of the world, the things that you know go in cycles. Yeah. But you know, in, t in terms of, of of what we what we do now, what VRA does now, I think you know our core functions are really to represent the, the interests of members. Um, and, and you know, personally, I don't equate that to to, to me doing what I'm told. I, I take a, a broader view than that, and and think on a on a on a larger scale. Mm. Um, what's best for for all of the members overall, looking to the future. And I think that's particularly, you know, we, we particularly need to continue to represent our interest to government. Mm -hmm. I think we've got an important role in disseminating disseminating information, uh, sharing ideas and best practice. Yeah. And that, the aim of that is driving professional development, protecting the environment and really investing in the future of our industry. Mm -hmm. um, and I think probably another, I think probably the most important for members on a day-to-day -day basis is providing technical and support and advice to members right. um, if, if and when they have a problem. So, you know, if they don't understand something, or they, or they, or the agency have told them something, or they've heard something, they can get it. They can make a phone call, and we're at the end of a phone. Yeah. Um, to to take that up for them, we do we do a fair bit of that. Um, and I think the really important thing is, you know, we have members that we don't hear from, you know, from year to year. Mm. But but that that time they phone with a problem, you need to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, and I take that very, very personally indeed. Mm -hmm. You need to support them when they when they ask the question. Yeah. So I think I think that's it's almost like a bit of an insurance policy in many respects, mm -hmm. uh, an investment in their own in their own future. Mm -hmm. oh, amazing, brilliant. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so how can listeners get in touch with you and and the Vehicle Recyclers Association? 
I think the 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 easiest way um, to do that is to contact us through our website yeah. or through our Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, we, are, in terms of currently, we are fully at capacity, and um, I'd rather if people have queries or want to get in touch, is to do that through the website yeah. so we can manage yeah. manage the requests. Yeah. That that's easy. That's the easiest way of doing that, yeah. Andy. Yeah. Okay. And the, and the website address is in the show notes of the uh, of, of of this of this podcast, so everybody yeah, can can see that. So one final yeah. question, and and this is one we're asking of everybody that, that comes onto the podcast. Yeah. Um, what was your first car, and do you have any special memories of that car? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, my 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 first car was a was a Mark II Ford Escort, and it was the old it was the old family car. It was a hand me down. Um, and we were we were poor as we were poor as a family, um, and we we you know it was a long time after everybody else we seemed to get a first car, and they were always I mean I wouldn't say second hand they're probably fifth hand, um, just just before ELV, um, and I, but I do remember it was pretty basic. We'd had Mark One Escorts and uh, uh, this Mark Two it was a white one. And it was pretty basic, and it didn't even have a radio when we got it. And I do remember, I remember putting in the first, the first radio cassette, because uh, we were all we were all radio cassettes in those days. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I think. Do you know what? I think it might have even been an eight track, Andy, the first one. Do you remember them? <laughs> I remember them. I remember them. Yeah. Uh, and I remember wiring it in and being very proud of being very proud of that. Um, but do you know, it, I, um, I, we use that for that quite a bit and I think I passed that on and I do remember the first time I crashed that I haven't had many crashes um, but we did I did crash that driving through London down to commuting down to Kent one day and it wasn't a hard it wasn't a hard bump I just wasn't paying attention and ran to the back of somebody uh, managed to carry on you know the rads were set well well back in those cars mm. and managed to carry on driving down to Kent it was basically just a bonnet I think it was yeah. had the, you know the metal bumpers and we managed to buy one from a from a, from a scrapyard from a from a car breakers, and um, from that point onwards, um, I mean, I didn't do the repair myself. I I hadn't been to a car breakers mm. myself at that stage, um, but the person that I was staying with had. And uh, from that point onwards, I don't think I was outside of a car breaker very much. Yeah. Um, I, I was absolutely mad on on Ford Escorts and Orions, mm-hmm. um, and I. You know, when I when we were short of money, I I I, I probably hit virtually every car breaker in Kent, um, in the Midlands, and you know Northamptonshire. And, and the funny thing is, um, I still see a lot of them. Yeah. I still know a lot of them. Um, but I used to I used to I used to mess about with with salvage and broken down mm. escorts for a few years and years and years, driving everybody mad. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, Mark Mark two. Ford Escort. Ford Escort. Brilliant. There you go. Brilliant. That's fantastic. Chaz, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you uh, this morning. Thank you for, for your time. Uh, and I'm sure that the uh, you know all our listeners will, will enjoy you know, what you've been able to say and, and the insights that you've been able to uh, to bring to us. So thank you very, very much for that. Much, much, much appreciated. That's uh, my pleasure, Andy. Anytime. That was amazing. Thank you, Chaz, for your time and your knowledge. You'll find full details of how to contact the Vehicle Recyclers Association in the show notes. Please don't forget to take the time to like and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and give us a rating. Depollution podcasts are released every Tuesday.